Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is Athletics Life Stories with your host, Chris Broadbent. A massive track session, liquid lunch, a couple of pints of Coke and a packet of crisps. I remember thinking, I should be in there and I should be winning that bloody race. I've worked and been privileged enough to call hundreds of fabulous races. Welcome to Athletics Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Today I'm joined by a European and Commonwealth 5,000 metre medalist and the last British man to win an individual medal at the World Cross Country Championships, Tim Hutchings. Since retiring in the early 90s, he has become an accomplished commentator and the voice of the sport on Eurosport. He is also the founder of the Brighton Marathon, one of the biggest mass participation events in the UK race calendar. Tim, good to see you. And you, and you, yeah, no lovely to be on board, thank you. Good, good. So let's go right back to start. And tell me about your childhood and was, was, uh, was, what, was it, what was it like growing up uh, for you? Uh, well, I grew up, I was born in North London and then moved down to Sussex when I was one. The folks bought a little cottage in the countryside, which they lived in for 60 years. And that was the family home until a couple of years ago. Um, <clears throat> Mum got a job at a local private school as a secretary. And this is mid to late 60s, you know, dark ages. And um, <laughs> the school agreed to educate my brother and I. There were just the two of us, um, if they kept her salary. So we were damn lucky. We got a really good education and, uh, and, and you know, mum worked her socks off. Dad was a middle ranking civil servant commuting to London and had a great childhood. You know, we lived three miles from the school. So I was a day boy where most of my mates were boarders and, and loved it. Got a fantastic exposure to, to, to sport and, and um, music and, and, uh, obviously academics, I say obviously, perhaps not so obviously. Um, but no, really, really privileged in a way, but I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my, life, my mouth. You know, we were a, a, a very much a middle class family and, and struck it lucky through for mum's behaviour. Good, good, good. And was it at school where running first came to the fore for you? Yeah, it was a pretty typical, very good quality, middle sized boarding school for boys, uh, Worth Abbey down near Crawley. And rugby and cricket were the main staples, but, you know, there were other, there was um, cross-country in the winter that everybody had to do a bit, and, uh, you know, there were loads of other facilities on the school premises, squash court and, and, and swimming pool and all that sort of thing. But I, I, you know, just through my rugby fitness, really, which was probably two-thirds of the year, um, I developed pretty good stamina and used to win the school across country by miles so it was natural talent I was very very lucky um I was a pretty good cricketer pretty good bowler played for the county at rugby and I would much prefer to have been an international rugby player actually because I love the the team element the team spirit thing whereas being a long distance runner is a fairly lonely pursuit in many respects um so, yeah, the school was the foundation for my sort of getting into sports in a big way. And, and, and I love that, that exposure to a really good balance of, of things in life, you know, sports, academics, classics, everything. I didn't realise you were a good rugby player. What position were you? Wing forward. 
not because I was particularly fast, because I've always been short of a metre of speed, but um, uh, simply because, you know, I could keep running all day. And I love that position because you're entitled to be anywhere on the park. You don't have to, you sort of don't have to explain yourself when you're a wing forward. It's, it's a lovely roaming position. You're not supposed to be out on the left wing. You don't have to be right at the back as the last line of defence like a full back or... You don't have to be there getting a the ball out of the rucks and like a scrum half. As a wing forward, you could be bloody anywhere and say, that's my job. And I, I love that marauding element to being a wing forward. So, you know, I still have a deep passion for international rugby. I've, I've not had the time to stay close to club rugby. But, yeah, that was my first love. My first taste of sporting success, I suppose, was, was playing for the county at rugby up to about 16, 17. OK, but uh, when did cross country and running take over from the rugby? Uh, there was another guy at the school, actually, a lad called Neil Leach, who's an architect in California now. Neil was training hard. I don't know how he got dragged into it, but he was going up to Crystal Palace and meeting Frank Horwell back in the um, early to mid-70s, I guess. Uh, mid-70s. And he, because I was the runner in the school, um, I started training with him a bit one summer. I think summer of 75 and then ran the county championships and won it, uh, 1500, and then went to the English schools and came second at the English schools in 75 to a certain name and Martin. Um, and didn't know a thing about athletics, was so green, wet behind the ears. Um, but it sort of went from strength to strength then. I think I had a bit of a dip in 76. I went back to my rugby and my cricket and, uh, and then 77 ran 345 for 1500 when I was 17. Or 18, I can't remember. And then in eight, 78, ran a 357 mile and it all started coming together and um, was training with Frank at Crystal Palace more regularly. And left school, had a year off between school and going to Loughborough. So, yeah, it sort of, it sort of just happened to me. I was sort of just drifted along with it. It wasn't by any great plan. You know, my brother's the opposite. He's a lawyer. It was all worked out carefully. Went to Oxford, did law, fantastic law career, retired now in Dorset, living the life. Um, I was kind of the opposite. Most of my life has been drifting along with the, the tide of, as it's turned out, athletics. OK. Uh, and tell me about these sessions. That this, this, there were famous sessions at Crystal Palace, weren't there, with um, a whole group of uh, distance runners coming from different parts of the country for those sessions with Frank, wasn't there? Give us, give us a flavour of what yeah. those were like. Um, it, was, it was fantastic because I was talking a few minutes ago about how it's a very soul, not soulless, it's a very lonely pursuit very often being a middle or long distance runner but actually those sessions between the age of about 15 16 and I don't know when was I with Frank till about 27 uh were great for camaraderie in terms of going up to the palace and doing sessions with massive squads kids would come up from all over the country certainly from the bottom half of the country a lot from the southwest would drive up to Crystal Palace on a Sunday morning god knows what time those kids left they must have left at five in the morning drive to Crystal Palace we'd train all day get home at about five in the evening, absolutely zonked. I used to get the, the, the one-hour train journey back to Sussex in the afternoons and, and sort of fall asleep on the sofa after a big lunch, after a big late lunch. Um, it was just, you'd do a massive track session in the morning, a really long, thorough warm-up, about 30 or 40 of you, uh, massive track session, liquid lunch, a couple of pints of Coke and a packet of crisps, into the gym for strength and conditioning, as we'd call it now, um, for an hour or so after lunch. Uh, and then out on the track again for or in the fields at the back of Crystal Palace then uh, for relays and um, more sort of games that involved um, like uh, wheelbarrow races where, you know, somebody's down in the press up position. You pick up the legs and you, 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 you race over 25 yards and swap around at the other end and come back. And tons of stuff that was good fun and competitive and you'd be laughing a lot, but was actually really good strength and conditioning work as well. So by the time you'd finished all of that. You'd, you know, it would be four in the afternoon. Some of them would be climbing into the cars and driving home for three or four hours back to the West Country. And I, I had to get a, an hour and a half train journey back down Sussex then. Um, so it was great. And I think it, it laid a foundation for understanding how hard you can push yourself. Because two big session, running sessions in a day, plus what was effectively two strength and conditioning sessions in a day, is a hell of a lot of work. Um, and it made the days where you just got to go out for a seven-mile run. Seemed pretty damn simple. Right, OK. And I guess not long after then, you got to the f your first Commonwealth Games in 78. You were quite young to get there, weren't you? What was that experience like? Well, I was young, but I, it was funny because in 78, British Miling was in the doldrums a little bit, ironically, because the co cram thing was about to explode. 
And um, they'd been, I think the three A's championships had been in like June and the press, and there were a lot of press covering athletics back then, uh, slagged off the middle distance runners for jogging round. And it was, I think it was won by Dave Moorcroft in 3.44 or something. And they said, you know, where, where, where were these guys, where's the balls gone from British middle distance running and everything. And then a week or two later, there was a mile at Crystal Palace, the MC car mile. And um, Graham Williamson was second behind John Robson. He ran 3.55. And this in the days when 3.55 was pretty damn quick. And Graham ran 3.56. Brendan Foster was third, 3.57. Crammy was fourth, 3.57. And Graham was 18. Crammy was 17, ran 3.57. I was 19 and ran 3.57. And, <clears throat> and then, you know, headlines the next day, teenage tearaways, blah, blah, blah. You know, a whole bunch of us had run very fast times for those days. and. Ironically, Crammy and I got selected for the England Commonwealth Games team in Edmonton later that summer in Canada, along with Dave Moorcroft, who went on to win the Commonwealth Games. And Graham Williamson wasn't selected by the Scottish selectors. I mean, it was an absolute disgrace. He'd run 3.56. He was 18. Um, and there was some excuse about not having time to get the blazer ready at the time. I mean, it was <laughs> comical. Utterly. I suspect the selectors responsible for that are all... Long now departed, bless him. But it was a disgraceful tr- way to treat Graham at the time. And uh, uh, Graham's career continued to go from one disaster to another, even though he achieved enormous things, you know, winning the European Junior 1500 and that sort of thing. And ran a 350 mile off about three training sessions under George Gandhi. I mean, he was an astonishing talent, equally as good as Crammy, if not better. But his career just was blighted with injuries and so on. So I was damn lucky, you know, that sort of kicked my international career off, I suppose. Um, and, and then it went from strength to strength. Right. OK, well, we'll, we'll skip forward a bit now, but we'll move to the, your first Olympics in 84. Um, and, my only uh, Olympics. <laughs> your, your only Olympics, that's true, actually, yes. <laughs> your only Olympics in 84. And as I understand it, the 5,000 metres was the, um, you've moved to 5,000 metres by then. But it was the last event of the whole track and field programme there, wasn't it? And it was I think it uh, was, yeah. We ran on something like a Wednesday heat, Thursday semis, Saturday final. And uh yeah, the final was on the Saturday evening, I think. It was still sweltering hot. I think the only thing on the Sunday was the marathon where Charlie Spedding got his bronze medal. Um so yeah, it was it was and, and this was the case back in those days. For some reason the five thousand was always the last event. I mean it, it you felt sort of privileged that you were almost closing the show before the relays. Um, but it did mean you got all those extra days of nerves sitting around the village. <laughs> I was, I mean, luckily we can watch these things on YouTube now. It looks absolutely incredible, <laughs> absolutely rammed. What, what do you remember about the atmosphere there in LA? Well, it's, that's all you can do because it was just pre-phones, mobile phones, and yes, there were cameras, but you didn't sort of carry one in your kit bag. Um, uh, it was, it was an astonishing experience. It was the first big commercial Olympics. Los Angeles 84. So it had that little bit more sheen of, of com- commerce and the wealth that comes with it, I suppose. Um, and they did it really well. And I'm so glad it's going back to Los Angeles in, what, five or six years time. Um, so the stadium was <clears throat> on, absolutely monstrous. The, uh, the, the Coliseum probably had 80 or 90,000 in it. Very simple stadium, just massive stands going up both sides. I mean, there was no, no, no different layering or anything like that. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've got to rely upon memories. I've got very, very few pictures uh, of, of my time in, in uh, the Olympic Games, you know, 10 days in the village or a week in the village. Um, enjoyed it immensely, found it very, very tough, but we all knew it would be when you've got to run heats and semis and hopefully a final. Um, and it did sort out the, the men from the boys because uh, there were plenty of guys in the race who could run a fan- fabulous one-off 5,000, Ray Flynn and John Walker, who were milers. Um, move to the 5,000 for those games to get away from Cram and, and Co. and Ovette, funnily enough. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, the heats and semis found them out and they, they were, went out the back door. Even though they were great milers, they were not great, super strong 5,000 metre runners. And how do you regard your performance now? I mean, it was, it's, it's your PB. It's 13, 11. Great time. Um, but, but you finished fourth, the most annoying place of all. How, 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 do, you, how do you unpack all that? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm very pleased with it, looking back on it now. Um, I'm not entirely sure all three of the guys in front of me were clean, but um, that's, a, that's another matter. Um, 
sort of epitomizes my 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 running career you know i'm, I'm I, when i speak occasionally i say you know i was i, I probably hold the world record for losing because i came second third and fourth in everything never won a bloody thing um internationally um but yeah you've got to look back at it and just be grateful for the times you had you know i think <clears throat> i always say i got about 85 percent out of my running career and the other 15 percent was time injured and a few misfortunes um so i was pretty lucky and it was it was special. Uh, I still wonder occasionally if I did anything wrong during the race. Not there's much point in that wondering because I can't change it. Um, but it was a fabulous experience and, and, and great fun. And if somebody had said to me at the beginning of that year, you're going to be fourth in the Olympics, do you want to take it? I'd probably bitten their hand off. So, so yeah, you know, and uh, I should have pushed on better from that because if you can run 13-11 in sweltering weather, having been injured in the spring, having never used altitude, uh, with your calves like rocks as you were standing for the fin- for the final because he'd run a, a heat and a semi in the last couple of days. Um, then, you know, I was probably in 13-minute shape, frankly, back in those days. Um, but that <clears throat> that's uh, me 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 wondering. The uh, fact is I, was, I ran 13-11. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hmm. Okay, okay. We'll stay with the track. We'll get we'll get to cross country um, later on, but I just want to stay with the track and some of your track successes. So eighty six was a was a good year, wasn't it, in terms of medals, the bronze in the Commonwealth, um, and the, and the uh, bronze in the Europeans. What are your memories of both those events? Uh, <clears throat> it was a very satisfying year because after eighty four, when obviously things went very well, eighty five was a bit of a disaster. Um, I started living with my wife to be and spent too much time training hard and on extracurricular activities, which combined um, left me very, very depleted and tired in 85 and one or two injury problems as well. So 86 was very welcome to get back to, and you know, your confidence, everybody's confidence does this. And when you have a bad year, your confidence needs to be boosted again. So confidence got strong, won the national cross country in 86. Uh, did I win 86? Yes, I did. Um, by a huge margin from Eamon Martin and Mickey McLeod and a bunch of other lads up in Newcastle. So I knew I was in great shape in the in the late winter and spring. And yeah, the summer went from strength to strength. I, I ended up effectively leaving Frank that summer, Frank Horwell, because his training just started puzzling me. He was giving me so much hard work and I was in wonderful shape, but I needed sharpening. And Frank just didn't get that sharpening element right. I think he'd, he'd never coached a 5,000 metre, world-class 5,000 metre runner was the problem. He was pretty good at getting it right for 1,500. Um, and I actually ended up getting advice from Dave Bedford that summer. Um, ironically, because Dave made so many mistakes himself as an athlete, but maybe that is what made him a good coach, because he guided me around errors. Uh, so I just put in much better quality work in the middle of the season, that, which is what got me sharp enough to run well in the Europeans. I was still... A little bit tired, not quite sharp enough at the Commonwealth Games where I got a bronze and Steve Ovet just jogged past me down the home straight. Um, but yeah, a very satisfying year because of the, it was on the back of a very poor 85 and because I was able to nail it in a couple of championships. Okay. And was, was that a, cha- a challenge for you? You mentioned Ovet came sprinting past you in the, at the Commonwealth and you, you took it out in the Europeans and tried to win it. Was, was, the, was the sprint finish always a bit of a challenge for you? No, it shouldn't have been. I think, you know, I ran a 354 mile in 82 and um, and that was off for two minutes at 800. It was uh, uh, just chasing Graham Williamson round and round in a windy Edinburgh. Um, so I, again, you know, I would have, could have, should have. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I had another two or three seconds in me at the mile, um, but just never, never focused on it enough. But I was in very good shape in 82. I was running and finishing races really well. And um I never focused on 800 enough. I should probably have run, I don't know, 147 or something for 800, but never did. Uh, and under Frank, I guess, you know, while he was a wonderful old coach, I did too much strength work. And you spend a lot of your time tired and recovering and not enough time getting really good quality reps done and being up on your toes. Um, 
So to an extent, I think in sort of 85 to 89, the speed had been trained out of me almost. And I maybe, my own fault, wasn't doing enough extreme speed work. So I wasn't finishing races as strongly as I should. And, and as, a, as a result, of course, I finished with this reputation of being strong, but a gallant loser and not having a kick finish. Whereas actually, that would probably be one of the main things I would change now if I could have my time again, is working more on my speed and showing how much speed I'd got and, and being a strong finisher in races. OK, OK, sure. And, and just around this time, you can, you're competing on the circuit regularly. Can you give me a... If you can shamefully drop some names if you like, but what 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 events you took part in the circuit on the Grand Prix circuit in Brussels or Zurich? Which events you took part in there stay with you? I'm, I'm talking about the fantastic venue and a fantastic lineup. I mean, you, your contemporaries are like you know, Erita, John Walker, you know, the Lopez, these guys. Can you can you recall a particular glittering occasion that really stands out as a as a, as a fantastic event you took part in on the circuit? Um, gosh, 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 you're asking. Uh, not too many stand out because I would, I, I didn't win them. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> no, I, I was lucky. I had loads of great races at, you know, Brussels and Zurich and, uh, Koblenz and Rieti. Uh, almost always getting beaten, of course. Um, and I just, I'm just grateful for having been in a fantastic era when there were so many Brilliant runners. I'm grateful for the fact that the African Revolution hadn't happened yet, where I'd have been finishing 7th, 8th, 9th, not 3rd, 4th, 5th. Um, and uh, privileged to call you know, some of those great names good mates, like your John Walkers and Ray Flynn's. Um, Sada Wita was a, a different different being altogether. Um, you know, and, and the less said about the Moroccans, for very obvious reasons, the better. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't really actually... Chris, have that many things that stand out as um, really, really special races. I mean, I, I, I won at Koblenz in 1316, cantering round in 1984, a few weeks after the Olympics. And probably if I'd had pacemakers doing a better job, I'd have run 1305 or 1310 that day. I wasn't really digging that deep. Um, but then I had lots of gallant losses. So, um, yeah, a gallant loser. If that was on my headstone, I'd kind of be, kind of be happy with it. <laughs> Take that, would you? Okay, okay. Uh, tell me about, before we move on to cross country, about the, uh, the 1988 and uh, you didn't quite make the Olympics. What, what, what happened that year? 88, um, I was in fantastic shape, actually. I'd come, I'd run in Rome at the World Championships the previous year and come seventh in the 5,000 when I was less than 100% fit. And then 88 was in really good nick. Um, chose not to go to the World Cross Country in Auckland. I thought it was a long way to go when I was at a different stage of fitness, not really ready for it. Um, and then pulled a hamstring in the June, I think, and was out for two or three weeks, missed the trials, um, and was getting back in shape by August, in very good shape for August, September, when the Olympics was ro- rolling around in Seoul. And they chose not to pick me, which was really disappointing because in 86, I'd been third in the Europeans and fourth fastest in the world, 87, seventh in the world, and and then just not selected because I'd had a mid-season hamstring issue in 88. I don't think you get that now. I think now they pay you a bit more respect, that record of consistency at championships. Back then, <clears throat> that wasn't the case. Eamon Martin chose to double up, and I'm good mates with Eamon now, but at the time, my God, was I bitter. He chose to double up at 5,000 and 10,000, completely flopped in both of them when he went to Seoul. And I was sitting at home in fabulous shape watching it on TV. Um, one of the most disappointing moments of my career, I guess, was not being selected for Seoul. Um, and in actual fact, I was sponsored by Reebok at the time. And Chris Brasher, <clears throat> London Marathon founder, had a lovely cottage up in the Lake District. And he used to let myself and Steve Jones and one two other top Reebok athletes use the cottage. So I went up there for 10 days with, with Sharon, my wife then, and um, just trained my nuts off for another um, few couple of weeks in the Lake District, came back and had a stonking cross country season leading up to Christmas. Went over the continent about six or eight times and won everything by miles and getting the frustration out of my system. But I would definitely have swapped those cross country wins in totally forgettable races for uh, running in, in in Seoul again, running in the Olympics again. So yeah, very very disappointed at the way I was treated in regards to Seoul. Um, I think the selectors owed me more faith than was shown at the time. Do you actually watch the Olympics when you're not selected for it, or do you ignore it? 
when I when I didn't get well, selected. Yeah, when you don't so, get selected, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> do you know? I, I funny enough because it was on through the middle of the night, of course, here in the UK. Mm. So I was actually busy getting up and living UK hours and training hard up in the late. Sharon was sitting up all night and watching it on TV, and she'd report to me or come and wake me up occasionally for a, a final of an 800 or whatever it may be, and I'd go back to bed after half an hour. So I didn't watch most of it. I was sort of bitter and angry and confused and um, focused on getting fitter and proving everybody wrong uh, for what it was worth. Uh, so, no, it was it was one of the hardest watches of my career, I suppose, was watching the the 5,000 final and the, and the 10,000 final. Mm, okay, okay. We'll move on to cross-country now. Um, and in 84 and in 89, you got silver medals in the World Cross-Country Championships. Um, I mean, th- th- being the last British man to get those medals in the indi- indi- individual races, are these results that just get better and better by the year? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, I'm... I guess I was, you know, Frank coached me through the 84 um, World Cross Country and in and, and 89 I was pretty much coaching myself. Uh, and I think that's normal. You know, most athletes towards their late 20s and later in their career should know 95% of what they're doing and you just need a sounding board to, to check that it's OK. But 84 was a great surprise. I mean, I'd run the National Cross Country in 83 for the first time and won it by about 30 seconds uh, at Luton feeling very strong. And actually, one of the great regrets of my career is that the World Cross Country was in Gateshead a few weeks later. And um, I beat Dave Clark by 30 seconds or something ridiculous at, at Luton, cantering along. I'd been training in the States, in, in Arizona, unbeknownst to me, <clears throat> at altitude for about three weeks. Um, I thought I was just away on a training trip in the sunshine. Um, came back, <laughs> won the national by miles, and then got really sore shins. Couldn't run in the World Cross Country three weeks later at Gateshead. And sat and watched it, and there was Dave Clark getting involved in the sprint finish with about seven guys. And I think, and I, I think I'd won the Gateshead Cross Country on that same course, more or less, the previous winter, um, in the November or December. And I remember thinking, I should be in there, and I should be winning that bloody race. But of course, you know, that's that's uh, woulda, coulda, shoulda again. Um, but really, really strong regrets over not being able to contest that '83 World Cross Country. Um, and then uh, 84 <clears throat> was in very good shape. I'd been living in Loughborough for the winter. I'm doing mostly George Gandhi's training. George was such an incredible coach. And um, went to the World Cross and was suffering from shin splints again. Still hadn't got to the bottom of that and did eventually get it rectified. Um, but came second in the World Cross on a pretty much pancake flat course in, in Meadowlands in New Jersey. Very, very tough race up against Lopez, who was a bloody animal. Um, and and then had about four or five weeks off with shin splints through April and came into the summer trying to catch up, you know, obviously with the Olympics a few months away. So, yeah, that's why I mentioned earlier, I was you know, injured in the spring in the in Olympic year for several weeks. It was, was not ideal. Um, and then in 89, <clears throat> again, I'd sort of gone on that rampage of winning cross countries in late 88. Um, and that carried on actually through most of the winter. I was, I think, running across country two weekends out of three. You'd pop over the continent, uh, run a race. I think I won in 10 out of 11 races or something that winter and, and, and was getting good money. And, uh, John Bycourt was my agent at the time and John had set up some really nice deals for me post the world cross country in Stavanger in 89 if, if I ran and got a medal which I did, came second in a very, very tough course, although slaughtered by John and Gugu, who was another bloody animal, but he was, at least he was Olympic champion. Um, and uh, and then got a hamstring injury that spring after the World Cross Country in 89, uh, which actually ended my career, just went down and down, down, never got the hamstring injury fixed. It was right up high in my backside in where the hamstring meets your ischial tuberosity, the bottom of your pelvis, and um, never got it dealt with or, or dealt with the people tried um but it, it, it i ended up having a couple of surgeries on it and that was that it's gone a couple of years without any hard training and um you know 31 32 you have to read read, read the writing on the wall now it turns out it's a very common injury quite a lot of people have had it and i think people have figured out how to fix it but back then masses of physio and injections and manipulation and everything nothing could could fix it it was a horrific period for me 
What 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 was the the pathway for you at that point? If you, if you hadn't got injured, was it was it ten thousand meters? Was it marathon? What, where, where was it going for you? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it would have been would have been ten thousand. In fact, in eighty eight eighty nine, I'd started running eighty nine. I'd started running one two ten thousands. Never got a never got a fast one done, um, and that would have come. Um, but actually, through eighty nine, when I was running those ten thousands, I think I ran. 2807 or something in, in, in 1990 when I was about half fit. Um, I was already carrying the hamstring injury that I'd picked up just after the World Cross Country. So I was compromised for just about every 10,000 I ever ran through just lack of full fitness and this, this hamstring problem that basically stopped you doing speed work. You couldn't get your knees up. You'd sit in your car and when you were driving your car, it would get very stiff and sore and, uh, uh, I've, I've spoken to people about it over the years who have had the same problem. They all go, yep, 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 yep. Those are exactly the symptoms I suffered from. And uh, and yet many of them have got over the problem, whereas I didn't. Had two disastrous surgeries on my hamstring. I've still got a massive scar down the back of one of my one of my buttocks. Looks like I've got three buttocks. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, that was that. But like I say, I, I think I got 85 percent out of my career. So I was pretty damn lucky. Yes, good. And before we move on to your, your, your commentary career, um, you had a lot of success at the World Cross. What, what's your thoughts on the World Cross Country Championships today and, and what the future of cross country is? It's moved to a biennial. You know, it's, it, once every couple of years it takes place. just seems to have lost a lot of its prestige. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got real mixed, mixed feelings about the World Cross Country. I mean, first of all, the African Revolution has happened. And you know, I'm the first person my hands up and go, look, the Africans are a different almost a different species in, their, in terms of their running ability. They are so astonishingly talented. And I've got mates who are agents who've been out to Kenya and watched schools races and so on. And they go, look, you just have no idea how much talent, latent talent there is in the Rift Valley. There are tens of thousands of kids who could be the most wonderful runners. And thank God for the rest of the world, not many of them get exposed to an opportunity. Um, so, so I was lucky in that most of my career happened in that pre-African revolution era and now my second place in the world cross country, I'd probably be lucky to finish in the top 15. You know, that's sort of, I think that's where it's got to. And without wanting to besmirch the name and reputation of the great African runners, I think it's the success of the Africans in the world cross country that has damaged it because they've just totally dominated. They've taken it away from the non-African world. What happened was the sport across country, which was, largely sponsored by the Western world, was huge in Western Europe, huge in the USA, pretty strong in Oz. Most of the sponsors come from those 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 nations, and everybody likes to see a hometown boy doing good and being in there and mixing with the rest, and that means people in your national colours, and that stopped happening. And uh, the world cross country, therefore, started to stop attracting as much attention and media coverage in the Western world as it used to. Um, I think Nebbiolo in his era, and to an extent Diak in his era as head of the IAAF, they both put the World Cross Country in venues where either it was not getting much media profile anyway because it was being Jordan or, or, or back or beyond in China, or else on, on pancake flat golf course type circuits in, in Italy. And the World Cross Country just became a glorified track race. Um, there were, it didn't test people's cross-country skills, you know, climbs and twists and turns and changes of surface and all that sort of thing. Now, having said that, of course, it was in Denmark three years ago, mm. and the Africans still dominated, as, you, as you'd expect. But at least it was a, a fabulous spectacle. But by then, the damage had been done. So I think there was about a 20-year period where the World Cross Country wasn't really held on cr- proper cross-country courses. And... Much of the rest of the world was already beginning to switch off it because of the total dominance of the Africans. And, and, and that saw it dip, and it hasn't really come out of that dip sufficiently. Going to, to every other year is a, a retrograde step. Um, I think under DIAC's disastrous management of world athletics, or the IAAF, um, it lost a lot of status. Uh, Seb spent so many of his first years after 2015 firefighting, trying to get world athletics back on track, which to a large extent he's done. Um, and uh, cross country sort of got forgotten amidst all that. It, it's a huge regret for me. I, I you know, I would love. I, I think it's great that there's European cross country championships, but I don't think it does enough to bring cross country back into the the sort of high profile, visible world of of the Western media. I I actually put put forward an idea a few years back of having A and B races in the World Cross Country, and the A race would be 
all the top Africans and anybody else who can break 13.10 for 5,000 or 27.20 for 10,000. And the B race would be the rest of the world. And the mm-hmm. B race would be the race that all the world's media would follow because it would be Canada, USA, Australasia, Japan, all the European nations, so on mm-hmm. and so forth. It would contain um, a really good racial mix, but it would be the race that was really competitive, albeit the B race. And and maybe it wouldn't work. This is just me sort of hypothesising. Maybe it wouldn't work. And the A race would be, they'd run round and round for 35 minutes at 27.20 pace. B race would be running round at 28 minute pace for 35 minutes and be a fabulously competitive race with a massive mix of um, of national vests in it. And, and And that, I think, would have an audience. OK, OK. OK, we're getting on to things that will be a spectacle now. And obviously you've moved into the media and... Uh, after you finished your athletics career. How did you break into the commentary side of things? How did that happen for you? Well, I wish I could say it had been a proactive thing on my part or a grand plan. Um, but it wasn't. I mean, in 89, 90, I think I got invited to do a bit of colour commentary alongside the commentators at different events, sometimes when I was injured for ITV and BBC. And uh producer at... BBC, no, at ICV, I think, was a guy called Richard Russell, who ended up going to Formula One and becoming a big noise. But Richard was a great bloke. And when Eurosport set up, which was the old Sky Sports, when Sky started around 1990, 1991, Eurosport was Sky Sports. And Sky then dumped Eurosport and, and sold it to TF1, a French TV company. So it was set up in Paris, but still with its pan-European coverage. And Richard went with the brand name, with the Eurosport name, to Paris to set, help set it up in France. And he asked me if I'd like to go with them, with the with the brand. And actually, the other guys I've been commentating with at Eurosport in when it was under Sky, Ian Dark, great football commentator now, of course, and, and Stuart Story, legendary athletics commentator. Both of them stayed in the UK in different with different companies. And I went to Paris with Eurosport and sort of got dropped in as number one athletics commentator for Eurosport. And that was in the days when they were covering 30 track meets a summer and um, masses of other athletics, marathons and cross country and everything. So all of a sudden I was probably working 80 or 90 days a year commentating for Eurosport, flying over to Paris 30 or 40 times a year. And I did that for about eight or 10 years. Um, and uh, that got me established, I suppose. I learned learned an enormous amount from a year or two working with Darkey and and Stu Stu Story, both fabulous fellas. Um, and they'd come through the grades through you know more traditional ways of learning your trade as a commentator. So I picked up what I hope were good habits from them, um, and, uh, and 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 loved it. You know, sort of fell into commentating by accident, really. Like I say, my brother career path, lawyer, that's it, you're sorted for 40 years. Um, a lot of people come out of their athletics careers, as I did, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And I was very, very lucky that it, it ended up taking that course. So you commentate now for Eurosports, the World Athletics Feeds as well, and various road races as well, is that right? Yeah, I mean, Eurosport hardly cover any athletics. You know, they've gone down uh, <clears throat> gone down other avenues. I mean, you know, it's ratings. That's what that's what makes dominates decision-making. Um, Wills used to joke that, you know, oh, they've, they've stopped covering much athletics because of truck racing from Belgium. But the fact is, if truck racing in Belgium has massive following, then who are we to argue? Um, so Eurosport don't cover much athletics now. They do a few of the major marathons and so on. I've got to do the Valencia marathon in a couple of weeks. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm freelance. So I go to India three or four times a year on big road races out there. I used to an awful lot in the States. I had a wonderful time commentating the States for several years. Uh, for NBC, worked on Chicago and New York marathons for many years, uh, and still do races here, there, and everywhere. I mean, I was in Istanbul this weekend, just gone doing doing their marathon. Um, so you live by your wits a little bit as a freelancer in the media world, as you as you probably know. Um, gigs come and go, and you pick up new gigs. It's mostly done by word of mouth and who you know. And you know, I, I firmly believe that life is about relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I try to 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 get on with people and and do a good job and hope I get invited back. Okay, it's it's not an easy sport to commentate on. I mean, no sport's easy to commentate on. Let's be honest. But uh, but in athletics in particular, there's a lot going on. A lot of names, a lot of different events across track and field. How do you stay on top of it? And and what what work do you have to do in the background? 
well, put it like this. I wish I was a tennis commentator. Two guys <laughs> for, for three hours where about every 30 seconds you have to go, oh, my, wonderful cross-court backhand. Wonderful. <laughs> and that's it. And then you shut up for another 30 seconds and sip your tea. So athletics isn't quite like that. Two guys for three hours. Um, no, I'm, I'm joking. And, and I've got some mates who are great tennis commentators. But, but yeah, we... We're very lucky. Majority of the time in the big gigs, you get very good stats handed to you, good information on the athletes. Um, there are many, mostly the road races where you don't. So I was in Berlin Marathon for Elliot's world record a few weeks ago. You know, myself and Chris Dennis sitting there for many hours doing our own prep and all the elites, uh, the press packs from uh, some races are very good. In others, they're lousy. But even if they're very good, nobody wants to be given a press pack that looks like that. 150 pages of information you can't commentate on that you've got to have it on three or four pages of a4 so you have to remove move it across and, and generate it yourself into a workable commentary format you know if you're sitting there with three or four pages like that mm-hmm. you can you can commentate you can't commentate off a bloody book um so yeah there's a hell of a lot of work probably in preparation probably in 75 percent of events very very rarely do you get handed wonderful stats and information on the athletes that just needs a little bit of highlighting and a few notes scribbled on it and you're away you go that that doesn't happen much at all so um and it's not just about having the information in front of you anyways case of how you how you put it across you know do you do you entertain people do you do you know when to keep your tone low do you know when to get excited and 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 go through the gears as the race reaches its climax and so on and that's a, something I think you can you can learn, and you just have to, to an extent, be naturally good at. Okay, and uh, and thinking about the the events you've commentated on, and thinking about the the great moments you, you you've worked on, what what do you think? What do you look back and say has been your best work in commentary when there's something monumental happens and you you, you nail it, you get it right? Oh, um, not many stand out because. It's your job to do it pretty well. And if you don't, you're not going to get asked back. Um, so I would say almost what stand out more in my mind are races where I've messed up. Um, and I try not to think about them. Otherwise, I have to start taking tablets. Um, you know, things like Heidi Gebrselas against Paul Turgat in Sydney in the 10,000 final in the Olympics. That was just unbelievable. Um the other sad thing is, Chris, I've been doing this for so long now that there have been dozens and dozens of world championships and Olympics and European championships and so on, where I've I've worked and been privileged enough to call hundreds of fabulous races. So not many stand out because you're too busy getting the job done. Oh, look, the discus is in shot now. Let's talk about the discus. Oh, we're back to the long jump. Oh, OK, the 100 heats are about to start. Oh, and then in three or four days, I'm at another meet covering another six or eight races and a bunch of field events, you know, so it is, it's a, I don't want to say I'm a jobbing commentator on the circuit, but you have to go to each one and focus upon it and, and do a strong job and then move on. It's kind of, it's not that it's out of sight, out of mind. It's just that, you know, nobody's going to pay you 50,000 pounds to commentate in one track meet. So it's up to you to go and find a whole bunch of track meets in a six or eight week period to commentate on and, and get that work through your, contacts and, and, and networking. Uh, but if you go and commentate on 10 or 15 track meets in six or eight weeks, you will have covered hundreds of races. And so not many really stand out. So it's a disappointing answer, I know, because I'd love people to say, oh, God, the time, that's so blah, blah, blah. But I'm not like that. I sort of tend to move on through the different, um, from one event to the next. Okay, okay. And uh, not to make you cringe too much, but do you have any moments, any of the Coleman Ball moments you've had where you've, uh, you have perhaps cocked up? And then worse still, people have laid into you on Twitter about it. <laughs> have you had moments like um, that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you, you, I think with um, comments from third parties, you always get rid of the gushing, most complimentary 10%, and you get rid of the bitter, twisted, uninformed bottom 10%. That's always what I've sort of been led to believe. And then you, you rough, get roughly the more balanced, sensible comments in the middle. Um, and I'm certainly learning about that at the moment. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, this summer I had one nightmare race, I think, in Stockholm, where uh, a, a lad won it who I hadn't clocked. He improved 
from 749 at 3729. I mean, that's almost a world record jump in a race. So I hadn't focused upon him at all in my prep. And uh, his name also was complicated on on the start sheet. I think the name that was on his bib was not what was on the start sheet. So I didn't, I was trying to see, where, where is this guy? Where's this guy? And he's, you know, this you're on the last 200 and this guy's sprinting around everybody and going to win the bloody race. I couldn't figure out who he was. It was horrific. One of those. And that's the thing about live commentary, electronic commentary is, uh, electronic media is there, it's incredibly unforgiving. You're not sitting like a journo scribbling and trying to think for great Shakespearean line to describe a wonderful performance, whether it's football or athletics or anything else. You are saying it as it's happening and you've got to come up with the words. And if you don't, you don't. But whatever you say, it's out there. It's gone. You can't bring it back five seconds later and reset. Um, you can't cancel a tweet. You can't cancel your commentary. It's gone. And a lot of people have heard it. So it's incredibly unforgiving. And, and touch wood, I haven't after all these years dropped a serious F-bomb yet, as they call them, um, because that is kind of professional suicide. Um, but, yeah, I've had a few, a few, few, very few that stand out in my mind as embarrassing moments when I've tried to commentate in a race and made a, a, a pig's ear of it. Okay, okay good. Uh, tell me about the Brighton Marathon and uh, you're the founder of the Brighton Marathon. Um, I think the first one was, and I actually took part in the first Brighton Marathon. It's 2010, was it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2010, yeah. Um, when did you, when did that idea first emerge and what made you think it could be a success? Uh Okay, I mean, it's obviously a, a very topical at the moment, and I'll be careful what I say for, for a number of reasons. Um, but um, basically, I worked with Dave Bedford at the London Marathon for quite a few years. And then in 2005 to 2007, worked in the office at the London Marathon for a couple of years, three days a week, and in a variety of roles. And in any case, over the previous 20 years since retiring, or nearly 20 years since retiring in 1990, I'd picked up a whole load of different skills, had a pretty good skill set and knowledge set in terms of, you know, race organizing, sponsorship, the media, um, course design, et cetera, et cetera. Traffic flow, spectators arrival at the venue and so on. And um, I like to describe it as having different slices of a pie chart of knowledge. And I think I built up most of those to make a reasonable cake knowledge in most of those. So, when I was at the London Marathon, and, and actually for years before, it, it was very apparent for, for about a 20-year period that the UK really only had the London Marathon. The Edinburgh Marathon was ticking along okay, and there were one or two tiny little ones out in the countryside with 100, 150 runners. But the UK was desperately short of marathons, and um, the London Marathon was massively oversubscribed, um, started rejecting not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who said they wanted to do a marathon in April, in the south of England. Now, okay, vast majority of them wanted to do the London Marathon, but I knew there was room for more. So I spent three years between 2007 and 2010, having gathered together a little group of guys with the right skill set, right knowledge, um, locally down here in Sussex, um, put together the idea of Brighton Marathon, spent three years convincing the council to let us put it on. They did. We had our first one in 2010, had about seven, seven and a half thousand runners from about 12,000 entries. And boom, that was it. We were off and running. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, a, a, a real privilege to be able to see it given birth and, and, and um, see it grow and become a very, very good, very strong event. For many years, um, its recent demise is very, very complicated and an awful lot of the information uh, or supposed information that is out there in the commentary about the problems that the Brighton Marathon has been facing of late is, is uninformed and completely wrong. And the truth will come out. The truth will come out. Um, I can't say any more than that because it's a really delicate time, but it's been a, a very, very difficult uh, few months. And um, I wish things had worked out differently. Um, I was busy commentating around the world doing my doing my thing while others were in charge of the event. Uh, so uh, it's a horrible, horrible situation. Um, but but there will be a Brighton Marathon in 2023, and it will continue. Okay, that's good to hear. It's good to hear. Um, let's move on to social media. You're a big tweeter, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I said big Twitter? tweeter. I mean, I'm 
tweet a few times a week if I want to get something off my chest or if I want to try and inspire people to run a bit more when it's pouring with rain and windy and horrible. Um, yeah, I've got pretty strong views about a few things, you know, whether it's the way the shoe technology has been brought into the sport and the way it's been uh, sort of sort of uh, missed it over by some of the authorities, its effects on on, on the sport. Um, yeah, there's a few issues about which I'm pretty passionate and, and uh, it's nice to have that that outlet. Let's get into the shoes, and you've got your opinions on that. What, what, what would you like to see happen in terms of shoe technology and the, and the carbon plates? Oh, well, I, f- I feel like a stuck record, but basically I've got no problem with technology. You know, technology moves on, and, and these shoes are incredible, and it makes you think, why has it taken 40 years for somebody to realise that actually something magical can be put into the shoes to make people run faster and fatigue less? Um, I don't have a problem with the technology in the shoes, whatever the different companies are doing that's enabling people to run faster. Not a problem with that. One of my greatest regrets is, is that the authorities of the sport have not acknowledged it more um, formally and actually said, OK, we've got enough data now. My God, is there enough data to say that these shoes, and I was funny enough, I was in Istanbul. I was being shown a graph by a, a, a very, very respected person in the sport, um, and these sh- the, the, these shoes are making two minutes plus difference at the marathon. Um, mm. They're making almost a second a lap difference on the track for spikes, um, and therefore performances prior to a certain date that should be agreed upon should have an asterisk beside them saying these are in the old shoes, these are in the new shoes. That's all. I just think that um, to, to, to put um, guys now running 1500s in 327, 329 and everything, or 331 or 334, on the same ranking list as guys who are running in shoes without that technology in them is, is inappropriate. Um, and people say, well, what about when bamboo poles were used in the pole vault and it moved to carbon fiber? Or what about when the tartan tracks came in ahead of after, after cinder tracks? That's not the point the, you know, back then, if if with one message sent out around the world, a ruling could be adjusted or an acknowledgement accepted, it would probably have been done. But that wasn't the case. And that those things sort of gradually came in over a period of time around the world. Um, Tartan tracks gradually got introduced around Europe and so on. And there was a very, very gradual dovetailing of the old and the new in many of those adjustments in technology or track surfaces and so on. Whereas this has just come in, boom, in the space of a few months, people are suddenly running minutes faster at the marathon and a lot faster in, in, in every every race virtually. And I think there's been an opportunity that's been missed up till now. And I still don't actually think it's too late. I think there's an opportunity that's been missed to create more recognition of that threshold where we went from one technology to another. Mm-hmm. I know you're quite opinionated on the, the Kipchoge's um, so-called sub two to our marathon. Um, what, what do you do you think that do you think that will happen eventually anyway, in a more authentic way, the sub two hour marathon? It was, shoes, it, was yeah. obviously, it was obviously geared up for him to do it. Everything was, everything possible was analysed, and the, the shoes and the pacemaking and the. But what is, is it possible for him, him or somebody in the future to do that? I think it's probably possible for him. <clears throat> um, I think he, funnily enough, when he broke the world record in Berlin in 2018, he went out too slowly and then finished with a very impressive negative split. And then in Berlin, six weeks or so back, he went out. Uh, went out too hard, 59-50 at halfway, and 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 had positive splits, and 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 again didn't get the balance right. So I think there was another 30 seconds in there at least. Um, six weeks or so ago in Berlin, um, he could have run way under 201. Um, so yeah, I think I think Elliot could can possibly do it. I do think that you know it would be disingenuous to say, well, the shoes aren't giving are, are not giving him any advantage. Of course they are. They're giving him a couple of minutes, and and I, I, I would hope Elliot would recognise that over what other athletes were wearing, even four, five, six years ago. Um, so it probably will come. I was particularly disappointed that all Vienna thing went ahead in the way it did, and the media coverage it got, because so many people on the street think the two-hour barrier has been broken for a marathon. It bloody hasn't. 
you know, it's it's ridiculous. Um, so many so many rules were tossed out the window, the inconvenient ones, and some were kept in. And uh, it was they might as well have run a point to point marathon on a one one degree downhill course. You know, mm-hmm. it was it's like well, of course you can you can throw somebody off a cliff and they're going to break two hours for a marathon. <laughs> um, you know, so 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 what's the big deal about creating such contrived conditions? And saying, "Yep, he's broken two hours." Well, no, you know what, Sherlock? Of course, they can be achieved in those conditions. Good, good. And uh, what about you? Are, you? are you still running? And how often do you run? Well, I developed AF, atrial fibrillation, slight heart issue, back in 2016. Um, I don't blame Frank from all the hard rep sessions I did for <laughs> all those years. A lot of ex endurance sportsmen get get it, you know, whether it's um, cyclists or, or runners or anything else. Um, but it basically has curtailed any ability to run hard or run fast for a guy well north of sixty, um, or do fart licks and things. I just I just get out now and I jog about three or four times a week for thirty or forty minutes, very very slow. I mean, pathetically slow, and. Uh, the drugs I take for this slight heart issue have created like a sort of glass ceiling. They stop you being able to run hard. So I can, I don't even take my heart rate, but, but, you know, I, I'd get up to a certain work rate and that's it. I'd have to ease back. And, and quite often I'd just stop and walk for a couple of minutes in my, in my runs. It's wrong to call them runs, they're jogs. Um, and, and, you know, for, through my thirties, forties and fifties, I kept in pretty good shape. Um, and uh, you know you get to into your 50s and 60s and because you're an Olympian you think you're bulletproof you think well nothing can go wrong with me I've done all the hard yards I've earned a healthy heart the right to have a healthy heart and everything and of course that all comes crashing down around you when you get diagnosed with a slight heart problem and I was running back in 2016 early 2016 and getting out of breath very very quickly and thinking I was anemic or I'd got a virus or something you go and see a quack and he says hey you've got you've got a heart problem you're pretty sick it bloody slaps you around the face. Wow. Mm-hmm. It really throws up in your face your mortality very, very starkly. So, um, yeah, I still get up and I jog. I've had a few procedures in my heart, not open heart surgery or anything silly like that, ablations where they, they sort of reboots your, your heart. And they worked really well for me, touch wood. I've been very lucky. So I'm just grateful to, to get out and, and jog three or four times a week. And, I, and actually, I enjoy my running more because of that. You know, I don't... Uh, I, th- I think because you just have to accept the limitations, you your horizon lowers and your perception of running and why you do it changes. And I just love jogging now and enjoying the countryside and the lanes around here. Mm, that's good. So you don't beat yourself up about, uh, about the times you're running anymore. <laughs> no, I've been, well, for probably about 20 years, I've been calling it the Battle of the Bulge, you know, because I, <laughs> I like my food and I like my wine and... Um, if uh, and as of course the next distance running, you're used to your three thousand calories a day or whatever it is. So if you don't uh, if you don't keep the running going, it's very easy to chub up. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Great. We'll wrap up shortly, Tim. But just 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 to focus on you as an athlete, how do you think you'd like people to remember you as an athlete? Oh, gallant loser. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Just um, somebody who who tried very hard and did his best, finished every race on his knees when he was losing. Um, and got the best out of himself. Um, and that's, that's nearly true, nearly true under the circumstances. You know, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer actually that there is quite a lot of intellect in being a great runner. Um, and, and, and I, I think Co and Cram and Ovet not only were supremely gifted, for example, but are very smart guys. Uh, I think the same applies to Jake Whiteman, um, and his dad Jeff. You know, they're a wonderful pairing. Intellectually, they hit the nail on the heads perfectly and that that is a big part of it and um i was kind of not a blunt instrument runner but i probably could have done better under a coach like george gandhi who would have made a better team with me um and obviously jack buckner and now our our, our ceo of, of british athletics um was a wonderful pairing with george and i i have very few regrets frank was a great old boy and he kept me enthused and maybe i'd have drifted off if it hadn't been for the way he was great at working with youngsters but i do think that um being smart in in track and field is what can help make you a winner and i was never a winner and um and and a pairing you know it's a, it, it's teamwork getting a great performance out of any runner is is teamwork whether it's a 
somebody runs three or four hours for a marathon and they've got the wife cooking the dinner back at home or the husband at home cooking the dinner or uh if it's somebody's running two hours five minutes for a marathon it's you're part of a team so yeah i've enjoyed the journey and i've still got a massive friends and, and great connections in the sport and hope to be enjoying that for a, for a few more years good wonderful well thanks for your time today tim it's been uh, it's been really insightful and thanks for being so honest and open with us as well my pleasure thanks very much indeed thank you thanks for listening to athletic life stories with chris broadbent please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts Podcast Network.